be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. Thanks for joining me and for taking this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading The Cricket on the Hearth, Chapter 2, Chirp the Second, Part 1. In the last part, Dot had had a sudden and mysterious shock by the hearth that had puzzled John. In this part, we find out more about Caleb Plumer and his daughter. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 2 Chirp the Second Caleb Plumer and his blind daughter lived all alone by themselves, as the storybooks say. And my blessing, with yours to back it, I hope, on the storybooks, for saying anything in this workaday world. Caleb Plumer and his blind daughter lived all alone by themselves in a little cracked nutshell of a wooden house, which was, in truth, no better than a pimple on the prominent red brick nose of Gruff and Tackleton. The premises of Gruff and Tackleton were the great feature of the street. But you might have knocked down Caleb Plumer's dwelling with a hammer or two and carried off the pieces in a cart. If anyone had done the dwelling house of Caleb Plumer the honour to miss it after such an inroad, it would have been, no doubt, to commend its demolition as a vast improvement. It stuck to the premises of Gruff and Tackleton, like a barnacle to a ship's keel, or a snail to a door, or a little bunch of toadstools on the stem of a tree. But it was the germ from which the full-grown trunk of Gruff and Tackleton had sprung 
and, under its crazy roof, the gruff before last, had, in a small way, made toys for a generation of old boys and girls who had played with them and found them out and broken them and gone to sleep. I have said that Caleb and his poor blind daughter lived here. I should have said that Caleb lived here and his poor blind daughter lived somewhere else in an enchanted home of Caleb's furnishing, where scarcity and shabbiness were not, and trouble never entered. Caleb was no sorcerer, but in the only magic art that still remains to us, the magic of devoted, deathless love. Nature had been the mistress of his study, and from her teaching, all the wonder came. The blind girl never knew that ceilings were discoloured, walls blotched and bare of plaster here and there. High crevices unstopped and widening every day. Beams mouldering and tending downward. The blind girl never knew that iron was rusting, wood rotting, paper peeling off, the size and shape and true proportion of the dwelling withering away. The blind girl never knew that ugly shapes of delf and earthenware were on the board, that sorrow and faint-heartedness were in the house, that Caleb's scanty hairs were turning greyer and more grey before her sightless face. The blind girl never knew they had a master, cold, exacting, and uninterested. Never knew that Tackleton was Tackleton, in short but lived in the belief of an eccentric humorist who loved to have his jest with them, and who, while he was the guardian angel of their lives, disdained to hear one word of thankfulness. And all was Caleb's doing, all the doing of her simple father, but he too had a cricket on his hearth, and listening sadly to its music when the motherless blind child was very young, that spirit had inspired him with the thought that even her great deprivation might be almost changed into a blessing, and the girl made happy by these little means. For all the cricket tribe are potent spirits, even though the people who hold converse with them do not know it, which is frequently the case. And there are not in the unseen world voices more gentle and more true 
that may be so implicitly relied on, or that are so certain to give none but tenderest counsel, as the voices in which the spirits of the fireside and hearth address themselves to humankind. Caleb and his daughter were at work together in their usual working room, which served them for their ordinary living room as well, and a strange place it was. There were houses in it, finished and unfinished, for dolls of all stations in life. Suburban tenements for dolls of moderate means, kitchens and single apartments for dolls of the lower classes, capital town residences for dolls of high estate. Some of these establishments were already furnished according to estimate, with a few to the convenience of dolls of limited income. Others could be fitted to the most expensive scale at a moment's notice, from whole shelves of chairs and tables, sofas, bedsteads and upholstery. The nobility and gentry, and public in general, for whose accommodation these tenements were designed, lay here and there in baskets, staring straight up at the ceiling. But in denoting their degrees in society, and confining them to their respective stations, which experience shows to be lamentably difficult in real life. The makers of these dolls had far improved on nature, who is often forward and perverse, for they, not resting on such arbitrary marks as satin, cotton print, and bits of rag, had superadded striking personal differences which allowed of no mistake. Thus, the dull lady of distinction had wax limbs of perfect symmetry, but only she and her compeers. The next grade in the social scale being made of leather, and the next of coarse linen stuff. As to the common people, they had just so many matches out of tinder boxes for their arms and legs, and there they were, established in their sphere at once, beyond the possibility of getting out of it. There were various other samples of his handicraft, besides dolls, in Caleb Plume's room. There were Noah's arks, in which the birds and beasts were an uncommonly tight fit, I assure you, though they could be crammed in, anyhow, at the roof, and rattled and shaken into the smallest compass. By a bold poetical license, 
Most of these arcs had knockers on the doors. Inconsistent appendages, perhaps, as suggestive of morning callers and a postman. Yet a pleasant finish to the outside of the building. There were scores of melancholy little carts, which, when the wheels went round, performed most doleful music. Many small fiddles, drums, and other instruments of torture. No end of cannon, shields, swords, spears, and guns. There were little tumblers in red breeches, incessantly swarming up high obstacles of red tape and coming down head first on the other side. And there were innumerable old gentlemen of respectable, not to say venerable, appearance, insanely flying over horizontal pegs inserted, for the purpose, in their own street doors. There were beasts of all sorts, horses in particular of every breed, from the spotted barrel on four pegs, with a small tippet for a mane, to the thoroughbred rocker on his highest metal. As it would have been hard to count the dozens upon dozens of grotesque figures that were ever ready to commit all sorts of absurdities on the turning of a handle, so it would have been no easy task to mention any human folly, vice, or weakness that had not its type, immediate or remote, in Caleb Plumer's room and not in an exaggerated form, for very little handles will move men and women to as strange a performance as any toy was ever made to undertake. In the midst of all these objects, Caleb and his daughter sat at work. The blind girl, busy as a doll's dressmaker, Caleb painting and glazing the four-pair front of a desirable family mansion. The care imprinted in the lines of Caleb's face, and his absorbed and dreamy manner, which would have sat well on some alchemist or obtruse student, were at first sight an odd contrast to his occupation and the trivialities about him. But trivial things, invented and pursued for bread, become very serious matters of fact, and, apart from this consideration, I am not at all prepared to say myself that if Caleb had been a Lord Chamberlain, or a Member of Parliament, or a lawyer, or even a great speculator, he would have dealt in toys one whit less whimsical, while I have a great doubt whether they would have been as harmless.
So you were out in the rain last night, father, in your beautiful new great coat, said Caleb's daughter. In my beautiful new great coat, answered Caleb, glancing towards a clothesline in the room, on which the sackcloth garment previously described was carefully hung up to dry. How glad I am you bought it, father. And of such a tailor too, said Caleb. Quite a fashionable tailor. It's too good for me. The blind girl rested from her work and laughed with delight. Too good, father. What can be too good for you? I'm half ashamed to wear it, though, said Caleb, watching the effect of what he had said upon her brightening face. Upon my word, when I hear the boys and people say behind me, Hello, here's a swell. I don't know which way to look. And when the beggar wouldn't go away last night, when I say I was a very common man, said, No, your honour, bless your honour, don't say that. I was quite ashamed. I really felt as if I hadn't the right to wear it. Happy blind girl, how merry she was in her exultation. I see you, father she said, clasping her hands. As plainly as if I had the eyes I never want when you are with me. A blue coat. Bright blue, said Caleb. Yes, yes, bright blue, exclaimed the girl, turning up her radiant face. The colour I can just remember in the blessed sky. You told me it was blue before. A bright blue coat. Made loose to the figure, suggested Caleb. Made loose to the figure, cried the blind girl, laughing heartily. And in it, you... Dear father, with your merry eye, your smiling face, your free step, your dark hair, looking so young and handsome. Hello, hello, said Caleb. I shall be vain presently. I think you are already, cried the blind girl pointing at him in her glee. I know you are, father. Ha <laughs> ha, I've found you out, you see. How different the picture in her mind from Caleb as he sat observing her. She had spoken of his free step. She was right in that. For years and years, 
he had never once crossed that threshold at his own slow pace. But with a footfall counterfeited for her ears. And never had he, when his heart was heaviest, forgotten the light tread that was to render hers so cheerful and courageous. Heaven knows, but I think Caleb's vague bewilderment of manner may have half originated in his having confused himself about himself and everything around him for the love of his blind daughter. How could the little man be otherwise than bewildered after labouring for so many years to destroy his own identity and that of all the objects that had any bearing on it? There we are, said Caleb, falling back a pace or two to form the better judgment of his work. As near the real thing as sixpence worth of half pennies to sixpence. What a pity that the whole front of the house opens at once. If there was only a staircase in it now, and regular doors to the rooms to go in at. But that's the worst of my calling. I'm always deluding myself and swindling myself. You're speaking quite softly. You are not tired, father. Tired, echoed Caleb with a great burst of animation. What should tire me, Bertha? I was never tired. What does it mean? To give the greater force to his words, he checked himself in an involuntary imitation of two half-length stretching and yawning figures on the mantel shelf, who were represented as in one eternal state of weariness from the waist upwards, and hummed a fragment of a song. It was a Bacchanalian song. Something about a sparkling bowl. He sang it with an assumption of a devil-may-care voice that made his face a thousand times more meagre and more thoughtful than ever. What? You're singing, are you? said Tackleton, putting his head in at the door. Go it. I can't sing. Nobody would have suspected him of it. He hadn't what is generally termed a singing face, by any means. I can't afford to sing, said Tackleton. I'm glad you can. I hope you can afford to work, too. Hardly time for both, I should think. If you could only see him, Bertha, how he's winking at me, whispered Caleb. Such a man to joke. You'd think, if you didn't know him, he was in earnest, wouldn't you now? 
The blind girl smiled and nodded. The bird that can sing and won't sing must be made to sing, they say, grumbled Tackleton. What about the old owl that can't sing and oughtn't to sing and will sing? Is there anything that he should be made to do? The extent to which he's winking at this moment, whispered Caleb to his daughter. Oh my gracious. Always merry and light-hearted with us, cried the smiling Bertha. Oh, you're there, are you? answered Tackleton. Poor idiot. He really did believe she was an idiot, and he founded that belief, I can't say whether consciously or not, upon her being fond of him. Well, and being there, how are you? said Tackleton, in his grudging way. Oh, well, quite well and as happy as even you can wish me to be, as happy as you would make the whole world if you could. Poor idiot, muttered Tackleton. No gleam of reason, not a gleam. The blind girl took his hand and kissed it, held it for a moment in her own two hands and laid her cheek against it tenderly, before releasing it. There was such an unspeakable affection, and such fervent gratitude in the act, that Tackleton himself was moved to say, in a milder growl than usual, What's the matter now? I stood it close beside my pillow when I went to sleep last night, and remembered it in my dreams. And when the day broke, and the glorious red sun, the red sun, father, red in the mornings and in the evenings, Bertha, said poor Caleb, with a woeful glance at his employer. When it rose, and the bright light I almost fear to strike myself against in walking came into the room. I turned the little tree towards it, and blessed heaven for making things so precious, and blessed you for sending them to cheer me. Bedlam broke loose, said Tackleton under his breath. We shall arrive at the straight waistcoats and mufflers soon. We're getting on. Caleb, with his hands hooked loosely in each other, stared vacantly before him while his daughter spoke, as if he really were uncertain, I believe he was, whether Tackleton had done anything to deserve her thanks or not. If he could have been a perfectly free agent at that moment, 
required, on a pain of death, to kick the toy merchant or fall at his feet according to his merits. I believe it would have been an even chance which course he would have taken. Yet, Caleb knew that with his own hands he had brought the little rose tree home for her so carefully, and that with his own lips he had forged the innocent deception which should help to keep her from suspecting how much, how very much, he every day denied himself that she might be the happier. Bertha, said Tackleton, assuming for the moment a little cordiality, come here. Oh, I come straight to you. You needn't guide me, she rejoined. Shall I tell you a little secret, Bertha? If you will, she answered eagerly. How bright the darkened face, how adorned with light the listening head. This is the day on which little What's-Her-Name, the spoilt child Peary Bingle's wife, pays her regular visit to you, makes her fantastic picnic here, ain't it? said Tackleton with a strong expression of distaste for the whole concern. Yes, replied Bertha, this is the day. I thought so, said Tackleton. I should like to join the party. Do you hear that, father? cried the blind girl in an ecstasy. Yes, yes, I hear it, murmured Caleb, with the fixed look of a sleepwalker. But I don't believe it. It's one of my lies, I've no doubt. You see, I... I want to bring the Peary Bingles a little more in company with May Fielding, said Tackleton. I'm going to be married to May. Married? cried the blind girl, starting from him. She's such a confounded idiot, muttered Tackleton, that I was afraid she'd never comprehend me. Ah, Bertha, married, church, parson, clerk, beadle. Glass coach, bells, breakfast, bride cake, favours, marrow bones, cleavers, and all the rest of the tomfoolery. A wedding, you know, a wedding. Don't you know what a wedding is? I know, replied the blind girl in a gentle tone. I understand. Do you? muttered Tackleton. It's more than I expected. Well, on that account, I want to join the party 
and to bring May and her mother. I'll send in a little something or other before the afternoon. A cold leg of mutton, or some comfortable trifle of that sort. You'll expect me? Yes, she answered. She had drooped her head and turned away, and so stood with her hands crossed, musing. I don't think you will, muttered Tackleton, looking at her. For you seem to have forgotten all about it already. Caleb. I may venture to say I'm here, I suppose, thought Caleb. Sir. Take care she doesn't forget what I've been saying to her. She never forgets, returned Caleb. It's one of the few things she ain't clever in. Every man thinks his own geese a swan, observed the toy merchant with a shrug. Poor devil. Having delivered himself of which remark, with infinite contempt, old Gruff and Tackleton withdrew. Bertha remained where he had left her, lost in meditation. The gaiety had vanished from her downcast face, and it was very sad. Three or four times she shook her head, as if bewailing some remembrance or some loss. But her sorrowful reflections found no vent in words. It was not until Caleb had been occupied, some time, in yoking a team of horses to a wagon by the summary process of nailing the harness to the vital parts of their bodies, that she drew near to his working stool, and sitting beside him, said, Father, I'm lonely in the dark. I want my eyes. My patient, willing eyes. Here they are, said Caleb. Always ready. They are more yours than mine, Bertha. Any hour in the four and twenty. What shall your eyes do for you, dear? Look around the room, father. All right said Caleb. No sooner said than done, Bertha. Tell me about it. It's much the same as usual, said Caleb. Homely, but very snug. The great colours on the walls, the bright flowers on the plates and dishes, the shining wood, where there are beams or panels, the general cheerfulness and neatness of the building make it very pretty. Cheerful and neat it was, wherever Bertha's hands could busy themselves, but nowhere else were cheerfulness and neatness possible. 
the old crazy shed which Caleb's fancy so transformed. You have your working dress on, and are not so gallant as when you wear the handsome coat, said Bertha, touching him. Not quite so gallant, answered Caleb. Pretty brisk, though. Father, said the blind girl, drawing close to his side and stealing one arm round his neck. Tell me something about May. Is she very fair? She is indeed, said Caleb. And she was indeed. It was quite a rare thing to Caleb, not to have to draw on his invention. Her hair is dark, said Bertha, pensively. Darker than mine. Her voice is sweet and musical, I know. I have often loved to hear it. Her shape. There's not a doll in all the room to equal it, said Caleb. And her eyes. He stopped, for Bertha had drawn closer round his neck, and from the arm that clung to him came to a warning pressure which he understood too well. He coughed a moment, hammered for a moment, and then fell back upon the song about the sparkling bowl, his infallible resource in all such difficulties. Our friend, father, our benefactor, I am never tired, you know, of hearing about him. Now, was I ever? she said hastily. Of course not, answered Caleb, and with reason. Ah, with how much reason, cried the blind girl, with such fervency that Caleb, though his motives were so pure, could not endure to meet her face, but dropped his eyes as if she could have read in them his innocent deceit. Then tell me again about him, dear father, said Bertha, many times again. His face is benevolent, kind and tender, honest and true, I am sure it is. The manly heart that tries to cloak all favours with a show of roughness and unwillingness, beats it in every look and glance. And makes it noble, added Caleb in his quiet desperation. And makes it noble, cried the blind girl. He is older than nay, father. Yes, said Caleb reluctantly. He's a little older than me, but that don't signify. Oh, father, yes. To be his patient companion in infirmity and age. To be his gentle nurse in sickness. 
and his constant friend in suffering and sorrow, to know no weariness in working for his sake, to watch him, tend him, sit beside his bed and talk to him awake, and pray for him asleep. What privileges these would be, what opportunities for proving all her truth and devotion to him. Would she do all this, dear father? No doubt of it, said Caleb. I love her father. I can love her from my soul, exclaimed the blind girl. And saying so, she laid her poor blind face on Caleb's shoulder and so wept and wept that he was almost sorry to have brought that tearful happiness upon her. <laughs>